Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, January 9th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to be counting down the top 10 films of the year, according to Slash Film editorial team. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. So we have also we have already done the top ten uh, films of the year by the slash film writing team on this podcast, but those lists are incredibly different than our lists. Actually, there is like a good eleven or twelve films that are on our list, our collective three lists that are not on any of the top tens on that list. So what I'm basically saying is you should listen to this. There's 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 some discoveries to be gained here, probably, maybe, possibly. Um, I want to start this out first uh, with you guys, and I wanted to hear, Jacob, what, what did you think of 2018 in the year that was in movies? I thought it was a very strong year. I mean, I, I don't believe there's ever been a bad year for movies. There are only, you know, good years and great years. And I'd say this is maybe somewhere in between. Um, very, very, very good year. I saw a lot of stuff both in the mainstream and on the fringe that I loved, and my top ten reflects that. I mean, in my top ten this year, there are two massive studio movies that like were made for hundred million dollars. There's also really fringe stuff that like played best at midnight for cult audiences. So I like, has this year really brought a little bit of everything, and I was really happy when I made my top ten because I, I realized that. I had too many good movies, so that's that's actually a good thing to have. We got we got to chop out things you love because there was so much. So I'd say it was a good year. Brad, how about you? Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I think you know, any given year, you're bound to be disappointed in some regards. Like you know, especially when it comes to maybe some of the bigger uh, tentpole movies that you get excited about, and those can turn out to be disappointment and make you feel like uh, maybe things aren't as good on you know the cinema front as they are other years. But I think every year there's always a lot of great stuff to find. And, you know, sometimes it's during award season. Sometimes it's on the, the film festival circuit with indie movies. Um, but, yeah, this, this year was, was really was a great year. I like, I like Jacob had a difficult time narrowing down um, 
my list of movies that I love this year and figuring out what order to put them in simply because there was a lot of great stuff that I enjoyed this year. I feel like I'm the only one on staff that does not think this is a, an amazing year of movies. Um, I I don't think it's a bad year. I, uh, you know, actually on the site, I wrote up, I know all of you wrote your top 10s and I did a top 15. And the reason why is I did have too many movies that I wanted to include on my list. So I, I guess it's a good sign. But I also did, and I think I mentioned this on the podcast uh, last week, but I recently, uh, on my Letterboxd account, went through and rated, rated and ranked all the movies of the last decade and a half uh, because I was bored and had, obviously, um, cool like that. And um, so I, I got a little bit of perspective of, like, you know, what makes a year of movies and, like, what kind of film you know like what what kind of selection of films makes up uh each year and i i did notice that this year for me has a lot of four star films there's only one five star movie and for me like for a movie to be five star it has to be perfect or near perfect and it's something i will rewatch a lot and it's something that is uh worthy on my favorite films of all time do you know what I mean? Like it, it makes my like actual favorites list, which is not saying that, you know, if you don't make my favorites list, you're not a good film. I'm just saying, you, you know what I'm saying? So uh, this year to me had a lot of four star films, but uh, more than usual. Like there there are years on my top 10 lists in, in the past decade that had a lot of three and a half star movies. So uh, I do think this was a, a, a good year of movies. But I don't feel like the the top of the top the, that there wasn't a lot of like movies I will be rewatching for years to come on my list. But uh, but I'm hoping uh, to be proven wrong by your arguments for your 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 best of the year list, guys. Um, uh, why don't we start off this uh, this thing with number ten, and I'll get I'll get things going. Uh, my number ten is. Oh, also, actually, <laughs> before we start this list, I do want to uh, applaud us. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pat us on the back here, guys, because I feel like film critics, uh, the, I feel like the feeling is the film critics usually, generally, only put big, important dramas on these lists, and I think collectively our three lists feature a lot of. Uh, big movies blockbusters in a in addition to those smaller films it's a good uh range of stuff um it's not your typical i think top 10 list and i i am i'm proud of our site in that way that we we are you know willing to reward you know a big uh spectrum of, of movies um and i will start that off with my number 10 which i'm sure i'm gonna get crap about but it's a uh, bumblebee um now, I know some people have uh, criticized this movie for being too much like E.T. or The Iron Giant without adding much to the mix, and uh, that's totally a valid criticism. Uh, I don't, it doesn't bother me much because uh, it emulates those kind of films so well, uh, more well than I think films that tried to emulate those movies like uh, 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 Super 8 and stuff like that. Uh, this is without a doubt the best Transformers movie, uh, and this is coming from a Michael Bay defender slash apologist who enjoyed the first film a lot uh, and kind of likes the third installment, at least that uh, you know huge action 
third act. Uh, I was uh, worried that Travis Knight wouldn't have the action directing chops to live up you know, to the Bayhem that was established in this franchise. But uh, even though this film is much smaller, I, I, I loved uh, the action. I love the how human he made this. I love uh, Haley St- Steinfeld. Uh, she makes me care about a human character for the first time uh, since Shy in the original Transformers film. Uh, she's excellent and elevates this blockbuster beyond its means. Uh, the Cybertron sequence at the opening of this film... Uh, complete with the Generation 1 designs, is something I've been waiting since my childhood to see fully realized on screen in, uh, you know, quote-unquote live action. Uh, I I love that this movie knows it's a, it's a film based on children's toys, and there's even a third wall-breaking lo- uh, joke about Decepticons from John Cena in it that, uh, I don't know, it doesn't take itself too seriously. Uh, unfortunately, this movie... Uh, wasn't released in the summer i think it would have done much better then and i hope the studio doesn't take the poor box offices reason not to make a sequel and more transformers movies like this one uh i really enjoyed bumblebee um jacob what is your number 10 well uh my number 10 is peter's number four so i'm just gonna go dive out of this plane and catch up with it later <laughs> brad how about you uh, my number 10 is actually your number five. So, uh, I'll just let the podcast be perfectly balanced and we'll talk about it later. Okay. For number nine, let's start off with Jacob. All right. My number nine is, uh, <laughs> you can't find a more different movie than Bumblebee. Then can you ever forgive me? Uh, Marielle Hell, very intimate, very funny, very sad dramedy about a out of work writer played by Melissa McCarthy who starts forging uh, notes from dead celebrities to make money. It turns out that uh, it's a very lucrative market, and she's very good at capturing the voices of other people, even when nobody else wants her actual work. And before it becomes this uh, tale of like the lowest of low-rent crime, it is just a great depiction of being a, a creative type or a writer who is just having the roughest times. It's, it's writer's block. Uh, there's... There are just like scenes where you don't, characters don't don't take care of themselves. They get drunk. They go make increasingly poor decisions. And the center of it all is um, McCarthy and Richard E. Grant as Jack, her uh, newfound best bud. And they they're both just these extremely off the beaten path, uh, completely forgotten about people. Uh, they're both gay, which is a really really uh, nice touch. The movie doesn't lean on that as a plot point, but it emphasizes how uh, they like outsiders uh, from a community that doesn't really want them or accept them, and they find each other. So even though maybe the draw here is Melissa McCarthy you know, start, does small crimes, it's really about these two extremely lost people who are honestly genuinely unpleasant to be around, but become like your best buds when they're together. <laughs> it's really a movie about how how you find your friends and how you find who you are and how you find your community in areas where you don't expect it. And I thought this movie to be profoundly moving and also a great hangout movie. I just hang out with these two as they get drunk and make bad decisions and turn on each other and forgive each other and help clean each other's apartments and and betray each other and forgive each other again. It's just uh, I found it to be just this beautiful depiction of friendship and creativity and just being at your lowest lows and powering through it. 
I have yet to see this film. I'm it's still on my watch list. So I'm excited to check this out, after, especially after that, uh, you know, review. Uh, Brad, what is your number nine? My, my number nine is Game Night, and this is a movie that has stuck with me all year. When we did our midway lists of the best movies of 2018 so far, it was my number one. Um, I'm a huge comedy nerd. And this movie is simply just one of the best studio comedies that I've seen in a long time. It has such a tight script. It's a stylish movie. It does this incredible thing where it perfectly balances uh, absolutely hilarious jokes and gags with a genuinely suspenseful and cool thriller story. It has surprising twists. It has amazing performances, especially Jesse Plemons uh, stealing every scene that he's in as the the creepy next-door neighbor cop, Gary. Um, But this movie is just, it's nonstop, you know, hilarity the entire way through. And there's even sequences in here that are shot in a way that you don't normally see in movies like this. Um, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein do this whole that that whole sequence uh, in the millionaire's house where they're trying to get that Fabergé egg that they need, you know, to in order to save Jason Bateman's brother, and it's shot like a cool one take, you know, fight sequence from a blockbuster, um, and it shows exactly why you know they got got a gig directing the Flash. So um, I'm I'm I I can't stress how much I love this movie. I've introduced it to so many friends and family because of how good it is. And I've watched it several times throughout the year, and it's it's always great. Um, and I wish more uh, studio comedies would be just as memorable and really take risks and do something different so they stand out like Game Night does. It's so funny. This movie is so damn funny. <laughs> yeah. This movie actually made my list at number 11, which we're not doing on the podcast. You can read my full list on slashroom.com and linked in the show notes. But I agree with everything you said. I feel like... I, I wish more studio comedies were this good and shot in this way. And uh, Jesse Plemons so good. Um, let's move on to my number nine, which is uh, a film that doesn't, that doesn't appear on anybody's list. Actually, the films we've mentioned thus far, neither, none of them appear on anybody else's list. Um, mine is Love, Simon. Uh, this is not a film I was looking forward to or expecting to love. Uh, first of all, it's directed by Greg Berlanti, who uh, wrote the Green Lantern movie, and he's a producer behind a ton of CW shows, both bad and good. Um, secondly, almost no one I had, have know has seen this movie. I think Brad saw this. Brad, you saw it, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, yeah. I actually you're, I got on a plane, yeah. Yeah, you're one of the rare people. I don't think anybody else on staff saw it other than you. Uh, I could be wrong. Uh, but I heard uh, it was good, and I am a sucker for coming-of-age movies. Uh, so I decided to give it a try. Love, Simon uh, follows uh, the story of an in-the-closet 17-year-old named Simon, played by Nick Robinson, uh, who develops an online relationship slash crush with an anonymous classmate. And uh, this film is partially a heartfelt coming-of-age story, focusing on that first love in, uh, you know, the, the typical trying times of high school. And uh, But at its core, I think, is this mystery that examines everyone in his school life and looking to uncover the person who is on the other end of these correspondences. Uh, one thing that really surprised me of this film is how matter of factly it treated Simon uh, being a, you know, 
a gay teenager. Uh, this is probably the first studio produced gay love story to hit screens nationwide. And the film doesn't flaunt this milestone or use this perspective to go into areas, areas you might expect. Um, it's always, uh, diverting expectations in that sense. And I, I kind of love that. Uh, like the films of John Hughes, uh, the story feels universal, even though, most people probably never experience anything like the mystery conceit at the core of the story. It's a sweet story that will make you laugh, cry, and even though it doesn't veer far from the tried-and-true traditional structure of like these kind of movies, it does feel kind of a little bit like the same, but it feels fresh and some like something special. And uh, yeah, so that's Love, Simon. Uh, let's move on to our number eight movies. And I'll start this one off by saying my number eight is Brad's number two. So meet me in Roma to find out about that film later. Jacob, what's your number eight? Oh, my number eight is Brad's number one. So I'm just going to break out the good booze and call over some family and have a tough conversation a little bit later. I'm not sure many people are going to get that one, but okay. Uh, Brad. <laughs> well, no one, else, no one else saw this movie except us, Peter. <laughs> okay, Brad, what's your number eight? Well, my number eight is actually Jacob's number four, so I'm just going to sit here and turn to flowers and wait until later to talk about it. <laughs> uh, okay, let's move on to number seven, and I'll start this, off on, uh, this one quickly with my number seven is Jacob's number four as well. So I'll meet you in that garden, Brad, at the time. <laughs> Jacob, what is your number seven? My number seven is a movie I saw at South by Southwest uh, early last year, and that was Blind Spotting, a film I very much enjoyed when I first saw it, and then repeat viewings. I kept getting drawn back to it, convinced me that it belongs in this top ten. This is the directorial debut of Carlos Lopez Estrada, and stars David Diggs and Rafael Casal as two best friends who work together in Oakland and at first it's very much a, a hangout movie where they are going about their, their jobs um, as movers encounter all kinds of colorful characters, all kinds of misadventures. And the basic gist of the movie is that Colin, uh, the David Diggs's character is on parole and has three more days to not screw it up before he's a free man and, and able to, you know, live his own life and not to not to report in every night. And the movie keeps on like putting him in dangerously close to situations that could derail that. And it's really funny. It reminds me a lot of Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing in that it uh, puts you in this neighborhood, puts you in this city, and puts the good and the bad, the uh, ugly and the beautiful, and just lets you live out your life with these characters who you genuinely love. And then it slowly starts peeling back the reason why Colin was on parole in the first place, uh, why his friend Miles may not be good for him, even though he is the best friend he has. And it has this really keen look at gentrification and how Oakland is changing and how these longtime uh, Oakland natives are dealing with that. And ultimately, there's a scene where uh, Colin, like I said, David Diggs, who is best known for uh, Hamilton, where he is incredible. If you listen to that soundtrack or have seen the show, uh, he raps. And there are scenes where he's like, will be by himself walking down the street. And he'll rap to himself. Sort of like, you see him kind of like this. And it's really just being this sort of creative thing he does to pass the time when he's bored. And there's a scene where he confronts somebody and it raps at him all of his feelings and frustrations and pain 
in terror. And it's a moment where I think blind spotting like wraps itself up to become one of the quintessential 2018 movies because uh, this this rap shouldn't work as well as it does. And I think about it constantly because it is such a powerful encapsulation of one person's anger spewing out of them in a way that is incredibly cinematic. And uh, blind spotting is just. I expect I'll be watching this movie a lot, like even more so than maybe my number, my number top five on this list, blind spotting a film that's going to be entering my Blu-ray player quite often. Yeah, this is a movie that was brought up on the other list as well. I have yet to see this, and uh, they, they also pointed out that rap that you were speaking of. Um, Brad, what is your number seven? My number seven uh, is First Man, and it's a movie that I have been really disappointed that has hasn't been getting more attention on the award circuit that it seems like it deserves. That, that started to change a little bit with some nominations here and there, but I feel like this movie is such an incredible movie and better than it could have been. This could have been a movie that should, could have tread the same water uh, as Apollo 13. It could have done what plenty of other space movies like it have done before. But I think what makes this movie stand out is just how personal and intimate Damien Chazelle gets with Neil Armstrong as a man because this is this is a movie that is about the man that is Neil Armstrong and it just so happens to be follow him during the time that he is part of the efforts to get to the moon um and it's it's just so much more personal than any other you know telling of this story could have been uh it's not just about a moment in history it's about this you know tragedy in Neil Armstrong's life something that stuck with him something that defined him probably even more so than the moon landing does, at least as far as Neil Armstrong himself is concerned. And I think that the ending of this movie is not only harrowing for the way space travel is depicted, but especially for how it resolves Neil Armstrong as a man, um, as a character, and what, you know, what the moon landing actually means to him as opposed to what it means to the rest of us, to the United States, to the space program. And I think that that is something that no one really ever expected First Man to do. And I, I, that's, I love this movie so much because of that. It's in my top 15. It, it's an incredible film. I wish I had room for it in my top 10. I think Gosling here is my favorite male performance of the year, possibly, because it's so hard to play someone so withdrawn. And he he makes a fascinating case study in playing somebody who does not show emotions. And that's yeah, that's incredible. It, yeah, it drives me crazy that people think don't think he's doing anything special because that kind of reserved performance is is insanely difficult to pull off. I, I don't think he's not doing anything special. I just don't feel – I feel like there should – we should be seeing that there's something going on in his head and he's tr- keeping it in. And I, I feel like it feels more like he's playing a robot. And th- that's I one of the – No, I, I th- and I think, that, I think that part of the reason that I disagree with that too and, and I think this is why Damien Chazelle uses so many close-ups is because – I think you can see so much just in Gosling's facial expression, sometimes even lack of facial expression, and his his eyes do so much to to give an idea of you know what he is or isn't feeling in in all these moments. I don't have a yes button, so I'll just say yes. <laughs> I, I'm I'm such a NASA nerd, and I love Damien Chazelle's previous films, and I wanted to love that film. It did not make my top fifteen. Uh, let's move on to our number six films i'll start things off with minding the gap and this is a film you can watch right now on hulu so if you have hulu you should check this out it's uh 
this film compiles 12 years of footage. Director Bing Wei Liu, uh, he films and chronicles uh, the struggles of himself and his friends as they try to move on from their past into adulthood. It uh, starts with Bing filming his friends for skate videos as teenagers and evolves into a much deeper movie that gives perspective of modern adult um, adulthood, manhood. Um, what I think makes this documentary so great is Bing was filming his friends for years before he started like actually making this documentary. And because of that, he had incredibly intimate access to them that would be almost impossible for the t- typical documentary filmmaker to get. Like he, he filmed some, some encounters and some moments between his friends that I don't think anybody could possibly be in the room for, uh, you know, it's just, because of that uh it's uh through these portraits we uh we get a glimpse into the fractured home lives of these kids and how that resonates with them as they try to make their rough transition into adulthood uh bing even turns the camera on himself and his mother which is extremely compelling uh footage the the film can be heartbreaking to watch but is ultimately uplifting and uh you know, another film in my top 15 is uh, mid-90s, uh, the directorial debut of Jonah Hill. There's been a lot of uh, skateboarding movies this year. There was also Skate Kitchen, um, and I would recommend someone watch all three of these as a, like, triple feature. I would start with uh, with uh, mid-90s, go into Skate Kitchen, and then end with Minding the Gap. That is that is my gift to you out there. Watch those three films. You you will you will uh, thank me for it. Jacob, what is your number six? My number six is a movie that was featured heavily on the writers' lists, so I won't, I won't go too much here. Uh, but Yorgos Lanthimos's The Favorite, which is essentially what if Mean Girls, but in the but in the British royal court, and it is just this funny, wild, vicious comedy. Uh, probably the gayest movie of 2018 uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, um, not just because of what's going on, not, not just because of what goes on with the actual relationships on the screen, but because it is just this um, catty, witty, stylish movie that's, that fears on camp in all the right ways. And what I love most about this is that it proves that. You can look like a period piece. You can have all those costumes and the luxurious sets and all the details you can get from like those, you know, Oscar Beatty dramas. But then they can ultimately be, you know, a really catty love triangle story driven by the pettiest people in the world. And Rachel Vice, Emma Stone, and Livy Coleman are are this fantastic in the leads. And uh, I I want this movie's nightmare high school version of British royalty. I think the movie's a hoot. It's and it's ultimately really tragic, but in ways that like from a distance inform the comedy. And I know Peter does not like this movie and he's wrong, but it is it is a I think the favorite is a really wonderful, kind of incredible little thing. This is one I'm clearly in the minority of like i feel like i can't find one single person that agrees with me on this one so so don't listen to me listen to jacob and the rest of the staff go see the favorites brad what is your number six my number six is actually peter's number four so instead of talking about it i'm jumping out a window not on an airplane no a window (laughs) okay uh 
My number four. Well, I thought you loved the movie. I, I do love the movie. Uh, you'll find out later. Um, my number five is Avengers Infinity War. Uh, I feel like this film is, you know, it's 10 years in the making. We've had over one and a half dozen movies that have led up to this epic event. Uh, I'm not sure we'll ever get anything like this on the big screen again. I mean, Hollywood keeps on trying to emulate this Marvel Cinematic Universe formula with very little luck. And uh, seeing the Avengers interact with the Guardians of the Galaxy for the first time on the big screen... Uh, was a blast, and to think Disney had the guts to end their huge cinematic blockbuster event with with a snap that killed half of the known people in the in the universe. I I, I know I know there a second part is coming to fix that, but uh, so was Return of the Jedi, and in that way, this is the closest thing that will come to Empire Strikes Back uh, since the, uh, you know that classic Star Wars film. And I and seeing in the movie theaters, those people did not know that another one was coming. I don't know. It, the reactions were incredible. For that moment alone, the, this movie deserves to be up here. Uh, if if I have any complaint about this film, it's that it feels too crowded and maybe some of the heroes got the short shaft. But I think that's really subjective to who you know I wanted to see more of. Uh, I know this was Brad's number 10 movie of the year. Um, I am not ashamed to put this on a top 10 list at all. Uh, this was one of, um, one of my favorite blockbuster experiences of the year. Uh, it's this incredible culmination of all the Marvel Studios movies, bringing all these heroes together, uh, for this insane threat that is Thanos. And it's kind of amazing that Anthony and Joe Russo were able to do something that is as coherent and fun, has high stakes, does things that surprise you, is is funny, all of these things, while doing justice to the epic comic story that uh, fans have loved, you know, for for such a long time. Uh, It is a huge movie. It it delivers action on a scale that you rarely see, you know, in movies like this. It it does things that you don't that you don't see in blockbuster filming simply because we've never had any a a crossover event like this in cinema before. It, uh, It brings so many characters from so many different movies together that all exist in the same universe. I, I've just I have fun with it all the time. This is another one that I've rewatched several times this year, and I'm I'm never bored, and I I, I love it. Jacob, are we wrong? Oh, you're not wrong. I think Infinity War is so much fun. I've watched it three times. It's a gr- it's a great superhero movie. Uh, I just can't justify putting it on my personal top fifteen. I it would it probably wouldn't even make my top thirty. But at the same time, I, I also think it's an inc- an incredible pop culture achievement. There are moments in there that become memes for a reason. I'm glad you guys uh, love as much as you do. It's super fun. I think in 10 years, Jacob, when you look back on this year of movies, and if you were to put together the top 10 of that year, you would rearrange Infinity War to put it, be put in this there. This is and... my last word. <laughs> no! <laughs> okay. Uh, Jacob, what was your number five? My number five is a movie that is uh, – very much like Infinity War, except that it's not in any way whatsoever. It's completely different. There's not, nothing like it. It is uh, Ari Oster's Hereditary. This is the best horror movie of 2018. It left me, like, it, it might as well throw me against the wall and splattered me open and let me fall down a trail of my own blood. I was so wiped out by this movie. It is a vicious piece of work. And at the center of all is Tony Collette, my favorite performance of 2018. Uh, I think we don't, we don't give Collette enough 
credit. I mean, she pops in all the time. Does incredible work, and like no Oscars, like no, she doesn't headline a lot of movies. But here she is at the center of this family drama, family tragedy that evolves into the most macabre, uh, vicious, uh, supernatural horror movie I've seen in a long time. And she's brilliant. I mean, she's heartbreaking and she's terrifying, and she keeps the whole thing riding on her shoulders. And Hereditary, in addition to just being so freaking scary and so freaking gross and so upsetting in ways I was not expecting. It ultimately is about how you can't escape your family. I mean, uh, in the same way that, you know, there's certain haunted house movies that say like, oh, it's not the house that's haunted, it's your little kid that's haunted, it's you that's haunted. This is about a haunted family. This is about a family whose genetic code pretty much says, nope, you are doomed. You are, but you've been roped into the into this um, vicious cycle that you can't escape from. And it's, it seems really nihilistic, and it is, but uh, Aster's script is surprisingly funny. The performances are so good. And the tone here, this, this sense of escalating dread that climaxes with this 20-minute sequence of all of your nightmares coming true and a final ending that blew my head wide open with it, even though I saw it coming. It, it just, the implications of it are so upsetting <laughs> that I, I'm still processing it nearly a year later. I saw this at South by Southwest at a very late midnight screening. I revisited a few times since then. There are moments in this movie that are burned in my brain. It is it is a horror. It is, it is a horror icon. I, and I think we're going to talk about this movie in the same way we talk about The Exorcist. You know, it's given they can give a decade or two, but it's going to be a movie that people like profoundly talk about as a as a horror milestone. Yeah. Ten, ten years from now, we're going to be talking about Hereditary and Infinity War. <laughs> <laughs> Brad, what is your number five? My number five is Adam McKay's Vice. Uh, his vicious takedown of Vice President Dick Cheney, the, the phantom president, if you will, of George W. Bush's presidency. And uh, Adam McKay has somebody who I've been so excited to see the turn that his career has taken as a filmmaker. Um, he's somebody that I've, I've liked for a long time because, uh, because I'm a huge comedy nerd. I love Anchorman. I love Talladega Nights. Um, you know, I, I love Step Brothers, and he's just he has such a um, a fun, you know, unique comedy voice. And this movie is just continues to make me love, you know, the the skill that he has behind the camera in a much different way. Uh, he proved that he could tackle much more mature subject matter uh, in an interesting way that still brings his own comedic style and approach uh, with the Big Short. And th- I think Vice takes that to a whole new level. Uh, because this, this is this is really just a harsh satire of Dick Cheney and what he did uh, during his run up to becoming vice president and how he wanted to use the government's power to show people just how you know great the United States can be and um, really just you know shake things up in, in Washington D.C. Um, the the things that he does here are, are great. Like he he you know he breaks the fourth wall. He puts in a a random, you know, surprise ending. And he, it's, there's just so many things he does that are, this is exactly what we need during this tumultuous time uh, in our political and social climate. It's a movie that is in your face about how evil and corrupt some of these politicians can be and how much we need to pay attention to. I I, I talked about this on the last episode of the podcast, so I won't get back up on my soapbox for too long. But I think that the, the point that he makes about, the distractions that we pay more attention to than we do about politics isn't something that is entirely hypocritical because he's one who's always called attention to 
problems in politics. He, he even does it randomly in his, you know, crazy comedies. Like uh, Anchorman has a joke about Steve Carell's character, Brick Tamlin, uh, getting a position on the Bush presidency. Um, so I think that him calling out the idea of people paying more attention to pop culture and not giving enough attention to politics and the things that really affect us isn't hypocritical. It's just, it's important. And it's something that people just, that, that need to do. And Vice is a movie that I think hits that home and just shows us how uh, bad and dangerous it can be when we don't do that. For sure. Um, I also like that movie. It, it didn't make my top 15, but barely. And uh, I'm surprised it's getting so much. Uh, I feel like it's getting hate, right? Like, a lot of people do not like this movie, and I, yeah, I people straight up hate it. It's kind of strange to see. It seems, and it seems like it's mostly because of the criticism lobbied towards pop culture and entertainment in general, which I think is such a small part of this movie. First of all, um, but you know, even aside from that, I, you can't help but appreciate Christian Bale and how great he is as Dick Cheney. There, there, he's he's got his his mannerisms and his his delivery and and the way he walks, like he's got it down, and it's 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 scary even. And I, I want to uh, apologize to those listening out there that if you hear some technical hiccups throughout the this show, it's because uh, for whatever reason, uh, the city of West Hollywood has deter- decided to turn off my power during the recording of this podcast. So we are recording over cellular Internet and it's uh, I'm, I'm seeing a couple hiccups, but please bear with us. Uh, let's get to. Our number four, which, by the way, our number four has our first of two crossovers, which all three of us had these films on our list. Let's start this first with Mission Impossible Fallout. Now, uh, I had this highest uh, at number four. Uh, Mission Impossible Fallout isn't my favorite entry of this franchise, but I do agree that it might be the best overall film. I I still think I prefer, you know, Brad Bird's Ghost Protocol, specifically the insane Burj Khalifa uh, IMAX sequence. And uh, I don't know, J.J. Abrams' Mission Impossible 3, even though it lacks the huge action, it's just so much fun to watch. I think I've probably rewatched that one the most. But Fallout is such a great film. The action is insane and unrelenting, exhilarating. Uh, it's almost nonstop. Like, this film has so many action sequences that all of which are amazing. Uh, and uh, Tom Cruise is trying to kill himself. We won't let him do it. Uh, we're capturing it on film. Uh, it's, you know, this is the pinnacle of high spectacle. Uh I, I expect that I'm going to be rewatching this film from years to come. This is one of the few films on this list I feel like uh, I could end up rewatching every year. Uh, I also loved how uh, Fallout kind of leaves its James Bond inspired roots behind and becomes the first real sequel in this franchise. And it's not just a sequel to the last film, it's a sequel to all the other films before it. Uh, it, you know, clears up all the loose threads. Uh, I really, I really dig this film, and I know uh, you guys did too, Jacob. This is your number ten. Yeah, this is one of the most fun movies that's maybe ever made. I think that Kristen McQuarrie is a match made in in heaven or hell for Tom Cruise because they're heaven because they make amazing movies together. I think everything they've, they've worked on together has been great. Hell because they're, they're going to kill each other. One of them will die while making Mission Impossible movies. And that's kind of the thrill here. Everything is so real. The fact that Tom Cruise is 
actually jumping out of planes, actually jumping off of buildings, actually piloting a helicopter uh, for the climax. The fact that it's shot in a way so that you can you can accept that this is happening, but not shot in a way that makes you uh, that, that sort of oversells it. So I'm gonna go off on a briefest of brief tangents. Um, Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise are everything that Alejandro Inarito wants to freaking be. His whole, oh, look at me, I'm making movies that are hard to make. Look at me, my, my lead actor is eating bison uh, meat. It's raw. Look at me, we're very cold. Look at these long shots. Look how hard it is. And like the, the movies like The Friggin' Revenant are all about, look how hard it was to make this drama. Look how hard it was to make this movie. Whereas and it ends up being just this pile of BS. This, this movie has nothing to say. It doesn't say it very well. It is just like a collection of 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 press notes about how hard it was and how difficult it was. Whereas here is Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise making what looks like the most difficult to make movie of all time. I guarantee you very few people have suffered and are stressed out on a set quite like these two probably did on Mission Impossible Fallout and they make it look friggin' easy. Mission Impossible Fallout makes the hardest stunts, the most difficult sequences, um, all are blended with characters we like and know and a story that's good and it makes it look like it's a day at the park. It is brilliant filmmaking, and we don't give enough credit to these, like these pop, these pop geniuses who are <laughs> making incredible, incredible art, um, incredible, incredible action art, while we fall over ourselves to praise these pretentious bullshit artists who are winning Oscars. Give McQuarrie a thousand Oscars tomorrow, please. Thank you, <laughs> Brad. This was your number six of the year. It was, uh, and while I don't share Jacob's unbridled hate and anger towards Alejandro Gonzalez and Yuritu, <laughs> <laughs> I will say that Mission Impossible Fallout, uh, like in Matters Infinity War, was one of my favorite blockbuster experiences of the year. Uh, this is a movie that's two and a half hours, but it goes by so fast simply because of how fast-paced, exciting, and exhilarating all the action sequences are. Uh, the, the story is never not compelling. There's there's great twists and turns. You know, it brings back all the familiar Mission Impossible tropes that haven't gotten tired all these years. It even plays with some of them in a great way, including their great, um, you know, de- de- um, destroying of, like, their old standby trick of using a rubber mask to trick somebody and then having to figure out a way to get out of it. And I feel like more often than not now, especially now that, um, you know, Christopher McQuarrie has... You know, is in the director's chair, is uh, the motto of IMF throughout this entire movie is, I'll figure it out, we'll figure it out. And I feel like Tom Cruise and Christopher McQuarrie are always trying to do that. They're trying to figure out, okay, like what can we do next? What's the next thing we're going to do? And they're just constantly trying to top themselves. And <laughs> Jacob's probably right. They're probably going to kill each other. One of them is going to die doing these things because the action here is just unprecedented, uh, unbelievable. And I'm just, I'm in awe watching this movie all the time because of how perfect these action sequences are and and they never feel completely unrealistic either you know we, we you see plenty of uh big tentpole movies that try to pull off you know big epic sequences that are supposed to you know wow you but they don't ever feel as real as any of the sequences do in this movie and, and a large part of that is simply because of how dedicated tom cruise is to actually doing this stuff and it, and it shows in every frame of this movie yeah and he injures himself and it, you know this it's not even like this film is insanely plotted like they're writing this film on the set while they're filming it and somehow this this ends up being on all of our top 10 lists it's it's, it's amazing uh another film that isn't all of our top 10 lists but jacob had it highest at number four is annihilation yeah annihilation i've written about this movie i've talked about this movie uh it's been on almost every single top 10 list 
uh, so I don't want to. I'll be, I'll be brief. This is a terrifying science fiction movie that hooks you in with this really unsettling, creepy journey into the unknown, and then when you least suspect it, reveals itself to be about how people deal with traumas, how people deal with mental illness. Now, each character in this movie is essentially battling themselves in some way. A, a thing that's made literal in, in the end of the movie with Natalie Portman's character. And I found this movie to be uh, just disturbing and, and uh, thought-provoking. And it really helped visualize a lot of concepts that I feel are impossible to visualize uh, in anything that's not a genre story. It uses these science fiction uh, and horror touches to bring to life abstract concepts and make them part of a conversation in ways that I don't think any film has done before. I think Annihilation is pretty much an instant masterpiece. It's a great movie, and I am happy Slash Film is ranked so highly pretty much across the board. Brad, this is your number eight. It is. Uh, this was, this movie stuck with me all year, a lot like Game Night did. Um, there's so many scenes in the movie that are haunting and eerie and unsettling, um, and it's all in service of this narrative that isn't just a sci-fi thriller, but it has so much to say about self-destruction and depression and the way we treat ourselves and view ourselves, and it's it's visceral uh, all the time. You know, it's it really digs into your mind and settles in there for, firmly and uh you know the fact that it's led by this incredible cast of, of actresses too uh makes it stand out even more as a film because more often than not these kinds of movies we usually don't see with uh, uh an entire cast of you know actresses leading the charge um and i think that makes it that much more uh, refreshing and unique and yeah it's just uh, it's it's a beautiful movie uh darkly beautiful yeah, this film was my number seven. Uh, despite it being my number seven, I think this is the film that I end up thinking back to the most. I haven't rewatched it. Um, it's just it's so it's such a visual sci-fi feast filled with bizarre creatures, fantastical earthly environments, uh, thrilling moments, complex themes. Like you mentioned, uh, uh, Chris Evangelista wrote a whole piece on our site uh, t- diving into that. That uh, is worth reading after you see the film. Uh, I, I think, uh, in 10 years, you know, when we're, 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 we're talking about, uh, Infinity War and Hereditary, Jacob, we'll be looking <laughs> back at, at this film as a sci-fi masterpiece. And, uh, it's easy to make comparisons to 2001, A Space Odyssey, especially with, uh, that third act, which is kind of, uh... I don't know. How would you describe it, Jacob? It's, indescribable. Yeah, indescribable. Yes, perfect. Uh, I Mark Digby's production design, Rob Hardy's cinematography also deserve some credit. Uh, I think I, I'm very happy that uh, Annihilation has ranked up so highly on all of our lists. Um, Brad, your number four is not on anybody else's list. What is your number four? My number four is Black Klansman, and damn all of you for not having this movie on your list. Um, This movie is absolutely incredible. Um, What I love most about this movie is that not only is it a fierce and angry takedown of the Ku Klux Klan, but it also revels in that takedown by making complete idiots of all of these racist uh, assholes who are behind one of the most notorious uh, and awful organizations in in America's history. Um, having John David Washington 
in the lead role as a black detective who secretly infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan by becoming one of their members and duping them left and right is always funny. But because this is a Spike Lee movie, it also comes with a level of intensity, uh, plenty of social commentary that is not subtle by any means because this is not a time to be subtle. Um, the, the ending here is one that is infuriating and one that needs to be seen by anybody and everybody because the parallels between how the Ku Klux Klan behaved during, you know, the, these times when they were uh, in, in their prime uh, has eerie and, and disturbing parallels to what is going on in, in the country today. Uh, it is an important movie, but it's also a movie that is thoroughly entertaining. And oftentimes that's the best kind of movie. I, I just feel like the ending of this movie, not, I'm not talking about the the ending ending, like the ending of the story of of this story is so kind of very anticlimactic. And even though it has great performances and I that the ending that people are talking about, which I'll be vague about, uh, that comes after the ending is very powerful and makes you so angry and, uh, you know, filled up with so much emotion. I'm not sure the film earns that. But uh, Jacob, what did you think of Black Clansman? I think Black Clansman is very, very good. It's in my top 25. <laughs> Ask me to see my folder someday. I'll show it to you. Uh, I think it's, it's Spike Lee. Uh, finding the balance between Spike Lee, the provocateur, and Spike Lee, the entertainer. Uh, he usually you know, picks one or the other and runs with it. But this, this is a perfect balance of him doing both. I think that the movie has peaks and valleys that are maybe that are very high and maybe a little too low. I think there are moments in this film that are absolutely incredible, sequences that stand out. I still think it hangs together as well as maybe other movies on this list. It is a terrific movie. Uh, like I said, it's, the fact that I like it this much, it's not my top 10, says a lot about you know how much I like this year. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to our number threes. I'll start things out with Searching. This is a film that's not on any, any of your lists. Uh, this, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be, um, I'll be honest. This concept uh, did. I was not interested in seeing this movie. You know, it's filmed entirely on a computer screen. Uh, but Ben Pearson came home from Sundance Film Festival, ranting and raving about this little film, and I had to see it. And I saw it, uh, and. Uh, this thing is so good. Uh, it, it, the thing that prevented me from wanting uh, to watch watching this film, this conceit of everything taking place on a computer screen, is what I ended up loving the most about this movie. The constraints of that creatively, and how they cleverly and you, you know in exciting ways, the filmmakers navigate their story using that framing device. It's what's so interesting about it. Um, the opening of this film play uh, plays like the beginning of pictures up and is told, you know, on a computer screen by the guys who made those heartfelt Google commercials that made you cry. Uh, this film is inspired by the true crime genre that our society has kind of become obsessed with in, in recent years. And, uh, Offers some very unexpected fun twists and turns that totally averted my expectations. Uh, I'm honestly surprised it's taking actor John Cho this long to get the spotlight and acclaim he deserves. I hope he gets more opportunities from Hollywood. I, I really like this film. Uh, Jacob, why was this not on your list? Oh, Peter, you caught me. I have not seen Searching. Oh, yeah, you still haven't seen it. But, Brad, yeah, you saw it back at Sunday. Yeah, it's one of my big blind right? spots. 
Yeah, yeah, I saw it at Sundance too. Um, I really like this movie. Uh, I I saw it at Sundance, and I actually went out of my way to see it again once it came out in theaters near me, and I uh, took my girlfriend and my parents to go see it because I knew they would like it, especially you know with the the fun twists and just the unique storytelling. And um, but it wasn't something to, that like kept speaking to me, and that I kept coming back to and thinking, man, this is this movie is so good because it is it is a little bit hokey um and like especially when you get down to it it's it's not necessarily the um i don't know it, it, the most uh i guess eloquent crime thriller you could say I, i'm not sure but it's um i i really like it, i really enjoy it but i feel like it's a little bit more um surface level entertainment than any of the other movies that i felt like i really connected with this year fair enough uh jacob what is your number three uh, my number three is Luca Guadagnino's remake of Suspiria. I'm actually a big fan of Dario Argento's 1977 original film. And what's interesting is that movie is very plot light, very character light, very heavy on visuals and surreal moments and nightmarish touches. And it feels like it's set in 1977 Berlin just because. So when Guadagnino, the, guy, the director who made I'll Call Me By Your Name last year, another great movie, when he approaches the remake... Uh, he's the kind of guy who says, okay, let's make the fact that this is set in 1977 Berlin vital to the plot. So he actually examines the politics of that time and the politics of the location and comes up with a story that is very reflective of that time and place. So like the original, the bulk of the film is set in a dance academy uh, secretly run by witches. And unlike the original Suspiria, it's a very there's a lot of plot here. Uh, there's a, so much plot that it took me two viewings to really wrap my head around everything that was going on. And the basic gist of the story, you know, Dakota Johnson's character, an American, comes to the school. Uh, Tillis' character, who runs the dance academy, uh, may or may not have malicious plans for her. And it ends up being this I, really harrowing story of... Uh, rebellion and need for rebellion and when rebellion is justified and when violence is necessary and is violent rebellion um something that we need to do and um and it's also a great uh deal touching on memories and guilt and ptsd and pretty much all all these ideas are spilling out into this uh and do a story about witches and a story about witches who are dancing and using dance as, as a ritual. And it's a movie that's overflowing with ideas and concepts. And like Calling By Your Name, like his other work, Guadagnino shoots it in a way that makes you feel like you're there. Like, this isn't just, you know, you're not watching a movie about a, a witch-run uh, dance school. You can you feel like you're actually in that witch-run dance school. You can, you can smell it. You feel like you can walk around the hallways. You feel like you, you spent time with these characters. And it's a movie that the more I watch it, the more I realize that I have more to learn from it, the more I, I try to appreciate it, the more I for, put the puzzle pieces together. It's, it is just this grand, slightly messy puzzle of a movie that drops you into this situation. And unlike the original, which says, you're in a nightmare, this one says, you're in this very bizarre reality. And it's a, it is maybe the best horror remake I've ever seen. It is a fascinating double feature of the original, but it very much stands on its own as this really wild feminist hard take it's also about forgiving um people of past crimes but not forgetting their past crimes while also the, the need for revolution like i said a lot going on too much to sum up here but man what a movie wow uh 
I still haven't seen this film. I suspect I won't like it. Your high praise, just like you know, you did with the the favorite. Your comparison to Mean Girls got me to watch that. I I don't think I I could do this, Jacob. I don't think. <laughs> Peter, if, if you didn't like the favorite, you will hate Suspiria. I'll, I, I really strongly believe this, and you know what? That's perfectly okay. I, Suspiria is not a film for everyone. You're either gonna love it or you're gonna hate it. Both yeah. times I've seen it, I've walked out of people like next to me in, in the aisle angry at it, but how much I hated it. Really? <laughs> so it is. It is not for everyone. It is, <laughs> it, it is a movie that's made it with so many personal, specific touches that I can't imagine anybody who likes it being mad at anyone for disliking it. But it, for me, it struck all the right notes. Brad, what is your number three movie of 2018? My number three is actually your number one, so I'm going to save it for Comic-Con. <laughs> uh, let's move on to number two movies. I'll start this with Eighth Grade. Uh I don't think I've squirmed squirmed more in a movie seat any time this year than I did watching Bo Burnham's directorial debut. Uh, Eighth Grade is a dramedy about an introverted teenage girl uh, played wonderfully by breakout star Elsie Fisher uh, as she attempts to survive the last week of her disastrous eighth grade year before leaving to start high school. Uh, Burnham is able to capture an experience so universal and horrifying that some people have called this a horror movie. And uh, almost like slasher films, you are left on the edge of your seat wanting to shout advice to the character on screen. Uh, You know, if only Kayla could hear us and learn from our experience, uh, but just like us, she, she's going to have to learn for herself. Uh, I'm a huge fan of coming-of-age stories, and this is an exceptional entry into the subgenre. Uh, I know both of you have seen this film, yet it's not on your top ten. Why? Top 25. Promise. <laughs> Honestly, this probably would have been my number 16. 16. Uh, I, I felt bad about constantly pushing it down but there were so many other movies that that just kind of stuck out more to me and i felt accomplished more but i do love 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 eighth grade um and i i appreciate it for all of the reasons that that you did too it's it's so authentic and uh awkward to watch but it's also hilarious because of that i I understand that for some people it's more of a horror movie and they probably never want to see it again but i think that that speaks to just how good of a job bo burnham did recreating what it's like to be uh, an awkward adolescent and how good of a job Elsie Fisher did in portraying, you know, the, that life as an uncertain teenage girl. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of imagine Jacob's top 25 list is like Mary Poppins purse where it actually fits like hundreds of movies. <laughs> yeah. But there's 50 movies in the top 25, Peter. That's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob, what is your number two movie of the year? Well, my number two is your number one, Peter. And does anyone can wear the mask. I'll let you take the lead on that one. Brad, your number two movie. My number two movie is Roma. This was a movie that I saw uh, late in my catching up in order to properly do this list. Uh, it made me immediately wish that I'd seen it sooner just so I could have reveled in it a little bit longer. Um, it is such a smooth, elegant, beautifully told story, all thanks to Alfonso Cuaron's incredible gift of knowing just how to frame a shot and follow his characters and do so without making you even realize you know, that you're, you're watching a movie. The he moves a camera through the scenes in Roma is is so calming 
and just just beautiful. Uh, he the way, a simple pan from left to right, uh, especially when he's combining you know two shots in, into one uh, with a, a a cut that continues motion is just it's gorgeous. Um, and that, that's not even talking about the story at the center of this movie, which is uh, sad and and harrowing, but also has uh, you know beauty in it, and it has a lot of personal feelings in it from Afonso Cuaron, you know, who grew up in Mexico City. And it, it ties this family story into the the larger plights of what was happening in, in Mexico, you know, during this time when the government was being called out by student protesters and, and citizens, um, and there was violence erupting in the streets. And it, it kind of balances the idea of this political unrest happening in Mexico City with the unrest that is happening in this family's both uh, within the actual family and with their um, their their maid Cleo, and it's it's such a uh, wonderful story that is full of both hope and and sadness, and it just I think it's a perfect representation of the of the tragedies that we can endure as people, and that no matter you know how bad things get, there's always you know a, a brighter side that to help help come out you know better on the other side. Yeah, uh, this film was my number eight. I'm a massive fan of Alfonso's work, and Romo feels like his most personal film. Uh, despite choosing to tell the story from the point of view and perspective of a childhood maid and not the children themselves, uh, and uh, maybe that, maybe because of that, the lead character story kind of feels almost like it's more passive, or maybe that's the point. Uh, this film, I agree with you, is uh, the, probably the most beautiful cinematography of the year. And Kiran, who acts as his own cinematographer, he lets those scenes play out in like those beautiful pans that you were talking about. Uh, Dolly's, uh, it's ex- expertly composed. Every shot is gorgeous and could be framed on a wall. Uh, the film begins more like a slow poem, which I guess is maybe why it's further down on my list, not higher. It, 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 in the second half, it really picks up and becomes haunting, heartbreaking, devastating, uh, life affirming. Uh, it's an emotional roller coaster of a movie that could only be crafted by a master like Kiran. Uh, but this fil- type of film, I feel like, is kind of the film I admire more than and more at arm's length than, uh, you know, have my arms gripped around in a big hug. Uh, I plan to revisit Roma in future years, and I'm sure my love will grow in that time. But right now, that's that's how it stands. Uh, Jacob, I assume that this film is somewhere in your Mary Poppins bag of the 25 films. Look, uh, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you guys. I tried to watch it on Netflix got oh, a little no. into it and, and realized this is not how I should watch it. I'll try to watch it theatrically. And my attempts to see it in theaters have been a, a Mark Brothers routine of failure and slapstick. And I will see Roma. I will see it because it, it is now playing in Austin in theaters. I will have the chance. I will report back. Maybe I had a chance of breaking my top 10 in retrospect. But, you know, it's a case where I chose not to see it rather than see it in the wrong way. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's move on to our number one films of 2018. And, Jacob, let's start with you. All right. I'm going to go ahead and do something I've never done before. And I want to read a portion of my blurb about Mandy, my number one film of the year, because I feel like this movie is too important to me to ramble about it incoherently. I think my thoughts are better if I read them. So I'm, give me give me 30 seconds here. This is from uh, my uh, written published top 10 list slash film. 
Director Panos Cosmatos speaks a variety of languages. He speaks the language of glorious VHS-era trash, a landscape of leather-clad vengeance seekers and bloody rampages. He speaks the language of the art house installation, the non-narrative powered by sound and color and tone, and the hint of a foggy answer lurking behind clouds of enigmatic questions. He speaks the language of horror, of heavy metal, of offbeat romance, and of Nicolas Cage, one of cinema's greatest secret weapons when utilized correctly. So Mandy's a film fluent in all manner of pop culture, capable of speaking to those looking for a surreal acid trip and those looking for a wacky action romp and those seeking a deconstruction of the revenge movie and those looking for an unsettling examination of profound grief. The fact that Mandy does all of this or made a cohesive whole movie with a singular voice is nothing short of a miracle. So, yeah, I think Mandy is a film that swings for the fences. It is this acid-powered heavy metal fantasy uh, that is also this really incredible showcase for Nicolas Cage playing a broken man uh, out for revenge. And also a great showcase for Andrea Riseborough uh, playing Mandy, who uh, has a much smaller role in Nicolas Cage, but leaves a huge impression. This is a movie begins as a dream, ends as a nightmare, and I can't even begin to describe some of the visuals in it. it it's kind of a movie where uh, it has Nicolas Cage being sweet and flirting with his love of his life, and then later battling a gang of demonic bikers who likely walked out of Hellraiser. And it's the same movie, and there feels like it's it's like taking a left turn because it's it eases you into its nightmare so slowly that by the time you reach the ending, you kind of realize I don't know how we got here, but we did not feel it did not feel jarring in any way whatsoever. And also, there's a great chainsaw fight, so you know, ten out of ten, a plus five stars. <laughs> uh, I have not yet seen this film, Brad. Have you? Not yet. I actually just rented it the other day uh, because I know I need to see it, but I have not taken the time to watch it yet. So that is why Mandy is only on Jacob's list on this podcast. Brad, what is your number one film of 2018? My number one film of 2018, this was another one that came in the last minute for me. I went out of my way to go see it in Chicago because I knew it was going to take forever to reach me here in the uh, lower populated area of the Midwest. Um, and it's Barry Jenkins, If Beale Street Could Talk. Um, I was wowed and moved by this movie. Uh, it is full of passion and intimacy. It is simultaneously hopeful and tragic. The performances from Stephen James and Kiki Lane are undoubtedly uh, moving, making the movie that much more heartfelt and, and genuine. The supporting performances on top of that uh, match the lead performances incredibly. Um, there are, are scenes in this movie that are so quiet and you can't help but hang on every single word that is being said. Uh, the score by Nicholas Bertel is so gorgeous and it just it seeps into every frame of this movie. Um, I, I I just was so so caught up in in all of it and like I I left it knowing that it was going it was my favorite movie of the year. Um, it, it's it's relevant. It's it's timely. It, it continues to show, you know, the the plight of you know of people who have gone ignored. And I I I'm, I was so moved just immediately by the beginning of this movie from um, the the text from James Baldwin, the uh, writer who wrote this back in this in the seventies on um, the play on which that the movie is based about the idea of the metaphorical Beale Street and how this is the story of far too many people. Um, and a tragedy that that a lot have endured simply because of how society uh, has has treated um, you know people over the years, um, black black people specifically, obviously. Um, and so yeah, this movie just it, it did so much to uh, make me feel uh, an overwhelming swarm of emotions. 
Jacob, this is your number eight film of the year. Uh, yes, uh, I think Brad put it really, really well, so I won't dwell too long here. But uh, Barry Jenkins is one of the best filmmakers around when it comes to building machines of empathy. I think between this and Moonlight, uh, I've I feel transported in the worlds that I've never been a part of, and I feel like I've I've inhabited not just the shoes but the soul of someone else. Um, Bill Street is such a is such a uh, moving, tragic, beautiful, uplifting movie. It bounces between romance and and tragedy just so often, and I feel like I lived this movie rather than watched it. It is it is quite sublime. I talked about this movie on this week's Water Cooler, so if you want to listen to me talk about this movie and why it didn't quite hit my top 10, you can listen to me talk in that podcast. But now is the time, guys. My top one movie of 2018 is Cobra Kai. This is the best thing I saw all year in the visual medium without a Peter. <laughs> Peter. Uh, I wanted to do this. I I, I tried to get this on the, t- the, the top 10 list. Jacob would not allow me to put Cobra Kai. It's a TV show, I will admit. Although it's, you know, if you presented these five hours in the cinema, this would be my top film of the year. So instead of Cobra Kai, my top film of the year must be Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Um you know, I wasn't even excited to see this movie because my faith in Sony and the Spider-Man universe uh, following the Amazing Spider-Man movies and Venom was kind of an all-time low. And uh, even Lord and Miller's involvement didn't have me that excited. Uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse blew me away. It um, is not only the best animated movie of the year, but in my opinion, a year in which we, you know, in in, in in a year in which we got long-awaited sequels to some of my favorite animated movies of all time, Incredibles and Wreck-It Ralph. But honestly, in my opinion, it is the best movie of the year. Uh, it might even be the best comic book movie of all time, if you ask me. Um, and that's a hard that's a hard thing to, to, to – that's a hard claim. That's a really hard claim. Uh, this film feels more like a comic book brought to life than any other movie I've ever seen in almost every single way. The jokes, the visuals, the, the, uh, the twists, the turns, uh, the style, everything. Animation style is so bold and striking. Uh, it's innovation to the medium of animation in my mind. Uh, it feels like a story that could, couldn't be told, uh, at all in live action. Uh, it takes full advantage of the animation canvas to tell this story like that third act i don't think i don't i can't even possibly visualize what that would be like in live action uh i love all the characters in this film spider gwen uh miles uh you know all the different spider-men uh i would buy a ticket to see all solo films of all these characters and please sony make them i know this movie didn't make a ton of money but i i want them i need them the biggest compliment i can make about this film and i said this on this podcast before is when the lights went up and i went home i didn't want my time with these characters to end and i couldn't wait a couple years for a possible sequel i immediately downloaded and subscribed to the marvels unlimited app and binged my way through a dozen comics uh, in the brian michael bendis run of the miles morales ultimate spider-man and uh 
and I'm still reading through them. I'm, I'm, I, I think I'm like 20 or 30 in at this point. Uh, th- this is the one movie on this list I'm sure I'm going to re- re- revisit on a yearly basis. I've already seen this film three times on the big screen, and I'm considering a fourth. This is this is the only film on my list that of 2018 that got five, a perfect five out of five uh, stars, and to me, it's perfect in every way. Uh, I know it was on both of your lists, uh, Jacob. It was on your list at number two. Yeah, it's perfect. It, it is a perfect movie, uh, taking at face value. It is the best superhero story ever told. It is confident. It is funny. It is moving. The relationships all make sense. There is 10 movies worth of story somehow jammed in this without feeling overcrowded. Uh, the relationships between Miles and every other character, uh, whether it's his father, the Ultimate Universe Spider-Man, or Gwen Stacy, they, they all are as grounded and as real as anything you could hope for. The visuals are spectacular. It looks incredible. But even when you take a step back from, you know, and examine it as, like, a pop culture, like pop pop art, an Andy Warhol esque reexamination of Spider Man and recontextualization of Spider Man. Uh, it is just it holds up as being this brilliant experiment uh, that has no business being a tentpole Sony Spider Man movie. It, it's brilliant. It's beautiful. It is. I will be rewatching this movie constantly. I've always seen it a couple times in theaters, but I know when it hits Blu Ray, um, it's gonna be. It's never gonna leave my player. It's, it's just gonna be in there at all times. Uh, Brad, this was your number three movie of the year. It was, uh, and th- I did a complete, such a complete turnaround in this movie, like you mentioned, Peter, uh, th- because this was announced at a time when Sony was already trying to figure out what to do with with Spider Man, and we knew that they were uh, going to bring Spider Man to the MCU, and then they were still talking about making this animated Spider Man movie, and I was just like, how much Spider Man do we really need? Like, you know, what else are you going to do with this character? And yeah. Uh, Producers Phil Lord and Chris Miller and um, directors uh, Peter Persichetti and Roddy Rothman uh, and Peter Ramsey uh, maybe put my foot in my mouth because they delivered one of my favorite movies of the year. They did something wholly original in a genre that is oversaturated. They, like you said, they've done something that is so such a close representation of what a comic book is and how a comic book looks and behaves and just put it into motion uh, in a way that's even more stylish than a lot of comic books. And it's just it's it's fun. It's funny. It's the the shots are incredible. The animation is uh, is stunning. Um, the voice actors are are fantastic. And it's, there's just so much about this movie to love for being unique and for having great action. For being a superhero movie that brings such a progressive and inspiring message for people who aren't used to seeing themselves on screen in these big big tentpole superhero movies. It accomplishes so much. And I just I just love how it completely upends the idea of what we think a superhero movie can be. And I hope that it inspires other studios to take some risks and maybe do similar things with with comic books and animation and do something that, you know, where where we get to see superheroes come to life in a way that isn't easy in live action and allows them to do weird and wonderful things like this. Yeah. And you mentioning the three directors of this film, Bob. Perchetti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman. It's worth noting because I feel like a lot of film geeks out there, not that Phil Lord and Chris Miller don't deserve credit. They do deserve credit. I mean, Phil Lord is uh, has a screenwriting credit. Both of them produced this film. But uh, I don't want to hap- this to happen to the film where, you know, if you ask 10 out of 10 people who directed A Nightmare, a Nightmare Before Christmas, they'll say Tim Burton. 
and I feel like Lord and Miller are getting all the credit on this thing, and these three directors uh, definitely deserve a lot of credit for this film. This film is, in my mind, a masterpiece. Uh, so credit goes to them and Lord and Miller on uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, Jacob, you wanted to talk about uh, our, our collective top ten of the year, right? Yeah, uh, every, every my first year at Slash Film, uh, I have, which four years ago almost, I have taken everybody's uh, end-of-the-year list, they send me their top 15, actually, and I compile them by a point system, and I come up with a site-wide uh, top 15 that reflects the whole site, and usually it's a really fun way to see the entire site's, uh, entire staff's uh, opinions distillated down into one list, a good way to have, like, say, what is not just, you know, my favorite list or your favorite list, but what is what, what are Slash Film's favorite movies? Yeah, th- th- and this, is, this is going to be on the site tomorrow, right? Like, so yes, and, people are going to have to go to the site to find out this list. They're not going to. We're not going to reveal it. We're going to reveal oh, it oh, here. Oh, I want to reveal it here as a treat to our podcast listeners. I mean, I guess if they made it this far, we're like an hour yeah. in, right? Yeah, I mean, like, sure. If people who uh, don't listen to the show can go read it, or if you want to go read it yourself after you have listened here, you know, feel free. It goes up tomorrow morning. Uh, but for a quick recap, uh, I want to um, hear the films that have. What have them in Slash Films' favorite films for the past three years or four years? 2015 was Mad Max Fury Road. 2016 was Arrival. 2017 was The Florida Project. So now, 2018, after compiling everybody's lists, here are the 15 films uh, of the year according to SlashFilm.com. Number 15, Minding the Gap. Number 14, Avengers Infinity War. Number 13, Eighth Grade. Number 12, First Reformed. Number 11, Searching. Number 10, Mandy. Number 9, Hereditary. Number 8, You Were Never Really Here. Number 7, Blind Spotting. Number 6, The Favorite. Number 5, Mission Impossible Fallout. Number 4, Roma. Number 3, If Beale Street Could Talk. Number 2, Annihilation. And number 1, uh, our Slash Film's favorite movie of 2018 is Spider Man Into the Spider Verse. That's a good list. Really I mean... good list. Yeah, uh, there's a bunch of films I still have not seen that are on that list, but um, but I plan on seeing them this month. Everything except for Suspiria. <laughs> yes, Suspiria was Suspiria. Unfortunately, cut off. It's one of the, it's one of the very, yeah. one of the very yeah, edge yeah. being cut off. <laughs> oh, 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 I was. Uh, why did I say Suspiria? I meant Hereditary. For some reason, I'm. I don't feel like I'm gonna like Hereditary, so I'm. I'm avoiding Hereditary. I know I'm gonna probably get a ton of emails. Uh, about that, but whatever. Uh, Brad, any thoughts on this list? I'm pretty happy with it. The only, I think, the one movie that I'm uh, actually kind of upset didn't make the list. It was Black Klansman, just because I think it deserves uh, that level of recognition. But there, there are a lot of great movies on this list, and I, I appreciate that it's very representative of the wide variety of tastes that we have on the slash film staff. Yeah, I'm kind of bummed that uh, Cobra Kai did not make the list. <laughs> Someday you guys are going to watch this show. Someday. Um, okay, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. Brad, where can people find more of your work online? Always.slashfilm.com, Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton, and my own podcast, Go Flix Yourself, on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. Jacob, where can we find you? Slashfilm.com every single day. I'm also on Twitter where I'm at Jacob S. Hall. And I'll plug this one more time. I just started an Instagram feed, uh, Jacob Samuel Hall which is mostly going to be weight loss updates and Warhammer miniatures. So look for that. 
Uh, you can find me at Slash Film on all social media. You can find all my work at SlashFilm.com. Uh, this podcast, Slash Film Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please leave your name, general geographic location, in case we mention the email on the air. Uh, please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow.